Hey there, everybody. This is Dr. Tavo D'Arcy, the host of the DFW Leader Online Ministry Fellowship for Fivefold Offices, those who feel they're called to one. These days, I'm really not going to be big on titles. There are offices, but we believe they're servant leader offices, as Paul wrote, even including about himself. He wrote all the offices in lowercase letters, not capital. Also, the word bishop, also about himself as an apostle. So he was a chief apostle. I think that's a good uh, way of remembering to keep its servant leadership. Also, we have to know that we obey the word, not other people, not the talk, the pressure of the keeping up with the Joneses or the prophetic terminology. We have to hear God for ourselves, and that's what started this. I happen to have been given much grace, undeserved, unmerited. I had a loving, natural father, a very kind person, but also smart and wise and nearly had his PhD, nearly had his, uh, you know, from the seminary, but he also, he graduated from the seminary, but he almost had a PhD, but he didn't ever publish his thesis. I think my mother came along into his life. But anyway, he was a an intelligent thinker, perceiver. No one, you know, talked about Holy Spirit much, but I think my sister resembles him, maybe my son. They're more easygoing, you know, even keel type. I'm pretty even keel for being strong, but the idea is that I really was am humbled by people who are meek, and I really am, and it really humbles me when I see somebody, God surrounds me usually with mostly meek, really meek people, sincere people that I work with, and it keeps me accountable to be that way, to think, oh man, they're so good at it, I need to work hard real hard. So that's why I also take whatever I diagnose, dish out. I also, God has worked on me a hard to get this far. And James 3.17 is my criteria for me, as well as everything for real life. Because I noticed years ago, I thought, you know, some people are so good at not saying the wrong thing, not slipping up when they're under pressure. And many times I am. I have a long, long fuse. I really have a real long fuse by God's grace. Unless I see deep injustice, racism, I might stand up. But anyway, but then I believe James, then I saw people the opposite. They just didn't, they were raised really rough. They were raised, accused, under pressure. That was the first thing that came out of their vocabulary was foul language and even rage. And I thought, you know what, there for the grace of God go I. But what can we do about this? Because these are supposed to be born again Christians. I think many times right now, including all of us, the born-agains need to be born again again and again again and, and keep our relationship as our relationship criteria that we try with all God's help as servant leaders to act and resemble like the wisdom of God that says it's any wisdom that represents God that comes from above is first of all pure, peaceable, easily entreated, full of mercy and good fruit and without partiality and without hypocrisy. And that's the way I'm used to family and used to friends. And nobody even said that word, but God had to reveal it. I guess I'm making a big deal about it. Maybe too big a deal for some of you because you don't need it. But I remember before all the media and the doctrinal changes of the 80s and 90s. And I remember it was pretty calm and in our nation. There was no accusation, self-justification, no using the media to pound people, get what you want, which is now in the day. I also know that God gives grace and mercy to all of us, no matter how we were raised, what we look like, what we act like. God can change us, and God can give us 
more than just a surface character. And I remember when there was real character, it was about the time of the Billy Graham era, and then the Jesus people moved because I was not a traditional person, even though I was raised carefree, you know, carefully but carefree, and uh, and then I saw, you know, just basically organic First Church Christ following, no racism, no bias, no legal hoops to jump through, and no accusation in my family, extended family of ministers, business people, by God's mercy. So I felt like looking back, I was like given granted grace because so many people were not, so many wonderful people, truly gifted and talented people were not raised. They were raised raw, and therefore they have to fight and struggle to figure out what is real in real life relationships and love. And to me, it's just like, oh, now I can tell what's aberrant, what's not organic, because I was raised by good people, God's people, around soft-spoken ministry. But then I get out there and I think, man, in this day we live, you have to be stronger than ever to not please people in the Christian community and the leadership because of the whatever has gone on, the force, the doctrine, and the legalism, the masses of crowds who follow it and understand it and want it to be done to serve them. Not in every case. I went over to, when I first moved to Texas, uh, I was led because I'd seen Bishop T.D. Jakes on church, and he really helped me during a really crucial time in my private life. So I always dealt with African-American community and racial healing, reconciliation, and I just admired him. I thought, I got to go see this place. So I went one Sunday in maybe July. I can't remember. It was just hot. And I remember going out there, and it was just as enormous where I came from, I used to live with like mega churches where 1,200 later there were some 3,000s and 7,000s, but I left. So I went out there and I went, wow, this is a whole, it was all Texas sky, bright blue, no clouds, hot white heat. And I saw this giant church with hardly a parking spot and all this dark skinned people with holy reverence walking like a nation into the church. And I went, wow, that's amazing. The spirit and anointing on the people is reverential. That's really different. That's wonderful. So I go in there, and I think God had me. I know God had me there for one comment that came straight from the bishop's mouth. He said at one point, how do you think I can manage 19,000 people in this megachurch? It has to be by revealed, uh, revealed hierarchy. And that helped me as a, as a flower, as a one who prefers tribal. And you can have mega like Mother Teresa, which is tribal. You can have mega, which is, and micro that's tribal. You can have mega, which is like formal, even, uh, what's his name, King Solomon or not. And so Bishop Jakes is like a Solomon, yet he is tribal. Uh, and I'm not putting one person up on a pedestal to preach the gospel of one person. But I'm saying it helped me as a seeker of the body of Christ, men and women. How do you tell people with different calls? How do you have, when you grow from a small micro, how do you grow and handle it, not become a mega, mega, what do you call it, only business achievement center of bureaucracy? And that helped me a lot. So you want to ask God to show you when you're growing how you do it without becoming a bureaucracy and personal callous the opposite extreme would be 
that you have a legalistic system. And that's what really got my rankles me because I met that too often in teeny churches, shockingly, medium and mega, a female, a lot of them. And it got me thinking, wow, what's the difference between tongue-talking, spirit-filled and Baptist where they are mega and micro? And I thought there is a lot of doctrinal differences and it isn't just about the Holy Spirit, but I'll talk about that later. But I, I thought, what is this? that gets this legalistic system like a prison where the members and the followers are all sort of coded with it and trained legalistically how to watch or manage using the law, using shepherding, which accuses, remember, our criteria when I'm teaching on Levitical Patriot, Old Testament Levitical Patriarchism, which is really shepherding, overseer shepherding, and our criteria are Read Jesus Christ's life as he was the bishop of all the bishops, the apostle of this church, you know, all the churches, as was a organic pioneer, a prophet of all prophets. And how did he treat people and respect people in all walks of life, all colors, all nations, all belief systems, all genders, little children to grown-ups? How did he do it in the middle of the Roman patricianism, the Roman culture with the Levitical system and the Pharisees? The answer to be, how did Jesus react under pressure in a real life with Mary, the people, God's people, his own people, all these different things in relationships, and you'll have a, a role for ministry, big or small, with the disciples. And we will not see, we cannot see the accuser there, because see the accuser when I've taught, and I need to repeat it, when you look at the whole Bible as an overview, and you go back to pre-sin, you find no law. There's no reason for the law. What it is, is relationship. Everybody's led by the Spirit, guided, communing with God, and it's fun. It's happy, or it's organic, all right? It's natural. Sin comes in, and the first sin is really Satan coming in, the serpent, bringing accusation and deception in. And see, when the accuser comes in, soon after Adam makes that choice, he accuses Eve. And then wars happen. All this is accuser-type theology, you know, how to get rid of it. The law set up, because it has to be our, in God's people, they'll create mayhem. They'll have no fear of the Lord. They'll have no eternity. So God is working mysteriously in the intricacies of the law for society and humans before legalism, but doing it because of sacrifices, atonement, holy fear of the Lord, preserving society from mayhem, stability for his people. Even that gets under a challenge, as we notice with the words of the prophets, the warnings to the leaders in Isaiah, Obadiah, the different infiltrations of the culture of the people, idolatry, uh, you know, Baal worship, all those things. So then the law ends up being eroded, looking at Obadiah primarily, for the warning about the Esau, the Edomites, who were infiltrating the carnal side of the Jewish people. At the end of the Old Testament, we find that God is really severely warning and rebukingly, rebuking the priests of his temple. He said, you say you're my messengers, but, and read the whole four chapters, it's not long, it's not just about bring the tithes to the storehouse. 
After that, there's 400 silent years where we believe that the warping and morphing of what had been the, the God's wonderful law was getting twisted and mercenary with more Edomite impulses and even historians, I uh, can't remember his name, he's on the bottom of an article I wrote, uh, said that that during that time that the Edomite priesthood predominated with a remnant of the other kind, the natural good ones. And so therefore it produced the hireling priesthood, which were the Pharisees, which was even kin to Herod. He was an Edomite. With that being said, we now think, well, what's going on in the Christian church in the day Jesus comes? And we find that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisees primarily, had set up their camp to make sure their income needs and bases were covered, that they'd have a set salary, they'd have income security, stability. So they set up even the temple money changers. They set up this you know, requirement, everybody watching and spying everybody, everybody accusing if you didn't do this, if you didn't. If you did work on Sundays, they even accused Jesus and the disciples of picking corn on Sunday for their food. They had they were known, and Jesus quoted that. You can read Matthew 23, his open rebuke, out on the hillside to the Pharisees in red letters in Matthew 23 to the his his crowd, you know, the multitudes. He wasn't PC about it. He wasn't whispering about it. He spoke openly, rebuked them, a diatribe, but respectful diatribe. And he talked to his disciples the same day. So something was twisted, really twisted about his father's house, their perception, their discernment, or lack thereof. So we don't put down people, human men or women, but we look at the doctrine that warps and shapes people. Doctrine is like infrastructure. Doctrine is is like a coral reef in which you put your choices, conscience, decisions. In the Bible in Isaiah, it says, Those who err in spirit shall come to understanding. Those who murmur shall learn doctrine. And so if we have people in our audience, in our congregations, that we're, or even we are, you know, grumbling and complaining, murmuring, then we need to examine the doctrine we are either teaching, sitting under, or surrounded by, men and women. When I was growing up, like I said, I had a basically, you know, carefree childhood by his mercy. Later on, I had things that happened that were violent, you know, domestic type things. But I got a litmus test. I got like a petri dish of of normal, a dose of normal. Even though I had a very autocratic for a time, my mother was very dominating and autocratic, micromanaging, but well-intentioned and a Christian. Her grandmother, I mean, her mother was a prayer warrior, a minister, her husband and her father was a businessman, business founder, but my grandmother was gentle and I think absent-minded. <laughs> and so maybe mom had to grow up feeling insecure because one day I think the grandmother left her at a birthday party. That was the story. But anyway, so I had to grow up not understanding what it was, but just being a different personality and not discerned. And her my father's mother would also come to help take care of the children, both of us, and she was the real dominator, and the two really didn't you know, get along. My mother didn't get along with her. And so I learned how not to be as a female, as a person, and I learned you don't want to be around people like that, and it made me heightened 
to being controlled and discerning of controlling personalities as a protection. At one point I wrote, and I'm going to try to find that article, the Bible study I did on Levitical patriarchism, patriarchism the study of Levi, and right in the written part, and it said, once you've been mauled by lions, here's my quote, once you've been mauled by lions, it makes it really easy to discern their scent. If you've been around dominating accusation, Phariseeism, domestic violence, predatory behavior, accuser, you know, doctrines, you're going to be heightened in your perception. You're going to pick it up in your spirit realm, discerner-wise. If you've been around racism, prejudice, gender bias, snootiness, if you've been around the pressure to perform, you're going to pick it up. If you've been around Levitical patriarch shepherding, where they watch you to see if you're under a church or in a church or under their kind of authority, even if you sit there, and even the women watch, she looks too free. I don't know what it is. You can feel it. So I want to warn people, you know, just let people know, not put the word curse on you or anything, but just let you know people are going to be coming, and you want to make sure they feel welcome and safe and that you're not back under the critical Levitical law. That's how I term it, as a discernment factor, not to accuse it, because God made it good for that season for his people. But we're now talking to the Christians, the born-again believers, and with the law, they become legalistic. And the legalistic law is used to accuse, and that's the main point, role. From the beginning, there was no accusation in relationships until chapter 3 of Genesis, the accuser comes in. That's when bias started, really, the organic root. That's when war started, all the things that are negative in carnal nature. When we look at why Jesus comes, skipping over to the Christian era in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so forth, we find that if you look at Revelation 12, verse 7 through 11, it describes pre-garden, the war in heaven, with the angels, the devil being cast down. It describes why Jesus came to bring back power, might, salvation to, his, to the church, to God's people. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Amazing. And then it says what really happened was that God gave power back to his church to overcome him. Who's him? The accuser. Revelation 12, 11 says, they, that's talking about the church, all the people, all God's people, they overcame him. The prophetic view from John, the revelator on the aisle, Apostle John said, I foresee a time in my spirit. He didn't write like that, but that's what he meant. I perceive a time in the day when they get it, when they really need it, but they get it. They overcame him. Who's him? The accuser, deceiver, Satan. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and they loved not their life unto death. All right. That means it says their principles and things in the Bible, teachings and interpretations of Bible verses and precepts that will help you have self-control, self-governing power back. Adam lost it in the garden. He really gave it away. He had a choice. Eve was deceived. Technically, in Genesis 3, but she goes over to Adam, whom God had talked to before Eve was formed and said, don't eat that tree. He'd gotten the command before. And so she comes running up with the fruit saying, here, honey, give, here's a taste of that fruit. And Adam had heard and made a quality decision not to eat that fruit, 
But when Eve comes up, I guess his heart melted like a man to a woman. And he said, okay, I'll try it. And he willfully participated and ingested and swallowed it. And that was the big start. When God comes up and walks up to confront them, up front, tough love them, kindly and respectfully, give them a second chance to fess up. He comes so and says, Adam, where are you? First chain of command as we believe. Chain of command, but not hierarchy, one, you know, controlling, you're less than, chattel, all that stuff that has come out later, sadly. So we see the principle of accusation. We see the world helpless becoming more and more accused, or even God's people. We see that in the midst of it, we see a prophecy of Isaiah 11, 2 and 3 about the Christ coming from the land, the branch of Jesse, David's tribe, the tribe of Judah. That means to plow or to praise prophetically and to a natural agricultural servant leader side, you know, tribe. Not from Levi, not the Levitical accuser Levi, the dysfunctional mayhem of Levi, Simeon, Leah's children, and that home, which we've taught on the first three chapters of this three video we see jesus christ being foretold that in the midst of the chaos of the old testament the midst of the warning word to the leaders and the elders in verses chapters 1 through 11 of isaiah that in isaiah 11 2 and 3 the prophet to the nation says that god would be sending a long-awaited messiah and that he would have all God's seven spirits. You can read in chapter 2 what that is. I mean, chapter 11, verse 2, what that is. Spirit of might, counsel, fear of the Lord, spirit of the Lord, and all that. But it says here he will have all that power, all that supernatural side, but he won't be spooky or flaky. It says instead, verse 3, he will be all those spirits will make him, having the spirit of God being filled with the spirit of God, knowing about the glory of God, it said it would make him sharp of discerning, quick of discerning, have the fear of the Lord, and he would not judge by the sight of his eyes or make decisions based on what he heard. He wouldn't be an accuser. He wouldn't be a judge and righteous judge. He would assess, discern, perceive, and act with justice, but not with accusation. In the middle of all that other confusion and conglomeration of relationships that were going on in that time. And then we find out that he would not judge by the sight of his eyes, neither would he sin spy, neither would he speculate, neither, neither would he perceive or peerish, do things he shouldn't. And he would not base, make decisions based on what he heard. He wouldn't tolerate accusation either. He wouldn't give accusation, dose it out, and he wouldn't take it. He wouldn't believe the evil report. That's part of the interpretation. So then we skip to the New Testament where Phariseeism has come on the scene big time. Accusation, the Roman government is there, the law, the pristine but proud Phariseeism, Sadducees system, the idolaters, Temple of Diana was like a mega ministry, and all these things going on, soothsayers, normal people, you name it. It was a trade route, uh, an area of great destiny, and it still is. We go through the time where the post-pre-Christian church was, like when Paul writes, there are no manuals, no scripts, no pre-printed you know, doctrine. They're 
figuring out with God's help and the Holy Spirit as they go, like we should now again, along with the Bible, to make sure we're here and right how to interpret it. But in the middle of all that first church, we have the Apostle John being ostracized because of persecution, boiling him in oil, but he was so preserved in the power of the Holy Spirit, they couldn't kill him off. So he's getting on the aisle, recovering, I guess, been through trauma, and he's alone, and he gets this download. It's the book of Revelation, the seven letters to the churches, warning and teaching and instructing God's lampstands, the overseer apostles of the day. We see that in later, he gets a word of the Lord about prophecy, that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. We need to act like him, not like the Old Testament prophets so much, but more like Jesus. Read about him in his relationships. He never accused. He never finger pointed. He never sinned by. Otherwise, he'd have been a Pharisee. We find out that John, who'd been through great trial, could perceive and hear from the Lord accurately, and that he had plenty of time to get the heavenly download. We don't find that there is any type of accusation, but there is a lot of revelation, a river of revelation in Revelation. Revelation 12 gives him a picture of what happened in the eternal battle before the garden, before sin, how Jesus Christ came as the game plan, what that game plan means. You can read it for yourself. I don't have time to read it all. It's so big. And what happened that it, the main thing was when accusation came in the garden with sin, Jesus comes back to null and void it with Holy Spirit power. If we seek after him at every turn, if we submit to him, his counsel, if we forgive everybody and forgive ourselves, if we believe in unforgiveness, it teaches us how to not accuse, how not reveal, revile, how not abuse, how not be belligerent. But then it also says what happens when we are persecuted, are abused, have belligerence toward us. And that's where I learned this, you know, just going through that kind of latter part. But it's because everybody needs to know this, and the future generation even more, that this is not about the law. This is not about being critical. It's not about being born again and being some, you know, hermit or Baptist or Catholic or Methodist or Pentecostal or Republican. And let me tell you this, ladies and gents, you don't want to fool, you know, you don't want to get people confused like they are now. They're too confused a lot of people I meet that are not, that are out in the Barista Fellowship and where I go, out on the turf, a lot of these people think the word born again means that if you invite Jesus into your heart, that you have got to become, at the same time, you'll automatically turn into a right-wing Republican and or Tea Party member that you're required. That's part of the turf. No, no, no. you got to hear God. I'm trying to be apolitical. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to think this is desperate times. It is desperate to make Jesus Christ full character, reason, purposes, name, good name known in the right fashion. This is for the future of the church. This is not for the righteous, self-righteous. They might be offended. They're probably offended. The people that are the hardest ones are the ones who've read all these books. They've read so many books, they know it all now. They've read so many books, they wouldn't recognize a liberal. 
without packaging them. Uh-oh, they're not a Republican like I am. I thought lately, and I'm just going to let it out, I thought lately, I've seen too many people that are in a red state everywhere I've turned. And if they're in their cluster and their clan, who are all red, almost, and I think, how, why in the world do, do they wonder why a blue state kind of person or a non-believer or another faith or a new age or a homosexual or a liberal echo-friendly person, why would they want to go if they heard already that everybody's born again, they're all red state, they're all going to be having to vote the party line, and they're going to be bigoted as soon as you step in the door. So can I say that? Not for the Christians. I'm saying it for the future of our church. This could be a very blue state soon. I was, In fact, that's what I felt God was showing me. I'm not saying it's going to be that way or not. I was thinking, where I live... People are used to having their way as the norm. And I wrote and put it up lately, a word I got for the body of Christ, for our nation, who are used to having it the norm from the 80s on up, 70s, 80s, and 90s. It's our way. It's our way. You're going to have to say it is not a seller's market anymore. People have got more information, more confidence, more people back. And there's so much bigotry, it's hard to determine. So if you want to say, you know what, I want to, you know, I only want to deal with a Republican. I only deal with a Democrat. I don't want to deal with any Jews. I don't want to deal with any Muslims. I don't want to deal with any liberals. I don't want to deal with anybody who's not like me. You are missing it. It is not about your political party being right. It is not about your political party or your views being wrong. It's about Jesus Christ. And are you showing real respect to the office of every human being made in God's image? You know, quoting a Bible verse, give them a track, lecturing them on the law, lecturing them with all this stuff, Bible beatdown stuff is a huge turnoff. People are not the same as they were eight years ago, five years ago, much less 25. And if I go some of these wonderful places, sweet people, a lot of sweet, smart people, but they can't handle anybody who's had a rough side. They can't handle anyone who's been mistreated because that person's got some skill now of being strong. Not too strong, but strong to survive in life. Or maybe they've had to grow up in the Lord and have a ministry they didn't know they'd have. Well, if you go in there and these gentle, soft-spoken, well-read, overly well, who can quote everybody's name that you've ever heard of that's famous because they read their book and they own it, those kind of people are my nightmare because they've already they've packaged it as that group and that crowd knows it all only and that nobody else has a right to a valid opinion. So I'm not trying to knock everybody like that because they're good people and they are, you know, really well-intentioned. But that is the, if you want to find people that are not going to your church or any church at all, you better get out of your church and go out and look and then not be you better be mellow, low-key, very low-key, and be able to handle a wild, opinionated personality or two or three because they're out there, and that's my turf. I can handle it, and I like it. It's fun. So I grew up soft-spoken. Ironically, I used to be so quiet. I was, like, born to be mild. I was so quiet, but I went through some really tough times and some real... Phariseeism, where Jezebel's spine doctrine, man, they are just relentless. 
Nobody ever talked to me. Nobody's ever confronted me. Never, ever politely called me up and say, what is God doing with you? Who are you? But I found out the hard way, this is what life is in too many Friendly Fire Fellowships. So I thought, let's get it out. This is East Coast, West Coast, North and South. But really, I thought if I, you know, found out doctrinal stuff that was not quality that would offend people and it wasn't even in the bible it wasn't even meant for these times it was not meant for the church the true church then i might as well uh, reprove and i reprove and yet the people that are the <laughs> the people that are modern day christ followers that follow jesus by the batch from tv and follow personalities they're really the lot of the reason i'm trying to say this not being hateful but i'm thinking you know what if I reprove, when I reprove, I was, or ask, you know, try to confront somebody, rip me off, the ministry off, a couple of times out here. And I, you know, politely, respectfully wanted to confront, like Matthew 18, 15 says, go make an appointment, relationship ministry, and value them, be respectful, but be upfront and honest. You want your stuff or you need to confront them. And I was ducked and avoided by three different groups at one point on this learning curve, a basic learning curve of, hmm, what is love? What is justice? What is, how much do you stand up and how much do you forgive? Well, the particular group quotes the Bible a lot. And I was told when I tried to make an appointment politely, Matthew 15, 18, 18, 15 says, go to the person. So I said, I'd like to make in a person to confront, to get my stuff back, my piano. And so I, the person hid and ducked and avoided. I thought, hmm, they're not submitted to God's whole counsel. So then it says, if, if you need somebody else, ask somebody to go with them. So I call their oversight, who had invited, you know, I met through them, I knew them. I said, would you go with me to confront? And that's when I learned the PC dribble it was big out here, some places. They said, oh, you need to forgive them. And they rebuked me. They accused me, who I had a $1,200 digital keyboard carted off cord digital keyboard and wouldn't return it hiding it instead of saying this is the peer sister in Christ you know that type of thing the leadership was ignorant and confused and I was quoted right and this is what I found the the teaching I am the righteousness of God using the good valid scripture that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, which I accept and believe and is true, was being used for lasciviousness, was being used for personal gain and abusing God's name in vain through that use of the word. Oh, I didn't sin. I'm the right, you know, no matter what you say I did, even though I really took it, I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And for the 2006, 2007 time period, 2008 maybe, that I seem to bump into that at almost every other turn in the grassroots. Now, I don't live out there. I don't want to. And I'm wiser. I thought, if I see that as a new person, a newbie, what do the natives see? And what do they really? No wonder Jesus' name is being blasphemed and, and people are not wanting to go to church. If you see that kind of rationalization, misquote of scripture, licentiousness. And I thought, well, what? this is what started it. What's in the doctrinal bathwater? I'd already started to discover, because I was in a lot of ministry meetings before I came out here, uh, pastors always discovered, you know, body unity and all that. And I'd seen prior to Levitical patriotism come in on our area, it was so happy. There was none of this big eye, little you ministry. There was no elite ministry, elevated pulpit, 
and then the doctrines, winds of doctrines, TV performance, TV celebrity came on the scene and different winds of doctrines came through and it started to happen. And I backed out of that. I really fully got away from it because I started to be, <sighs> see, people that are like Eli who priesthood, they think you're offended. They'll say, oh, well, they're not coming anymore or they are taking it personally and they'll use that it appears to ease their conscience that it's not about them so that they don't have to take responsibility for examining how they treated or disrespected that other leader, that other lay, that other, you know, wife, that other whatever. There's this blame shifting thing. So it caused me to write a book, to be honest, in 2013, after all my experiences culminated, at least I like to laugh. I have a sense of humor. Thank God. So I wrote adventures in blameshifting.wordpress.com as a result of my proving period, finding, you know, seeing what was going on. So I know this is not just about me because when the Lord told me, he said, don't take it personally. I don't want you to take what you see personally, but if you see it more than three times, especially in different states, male or female, I want you to teach on it because there's something really wrong. You only see one time or two you know, three times, but I see all around the nation. So that's why I'm teaching like this. Many years ago, I had television mentor in early 2000 before I got on TV in the area I used to live. And he had this illustration which helps me with that. He said, Nielsen ratings for television views one comment, either positive or negative, as representing 40 others that never wrote in. So if it's a negative comment, they must take it as statistically 40 others would have complained, and they note that. If 40, one person writes a happy thing, they take that that was positive by 40 other people. So when I went out and I started to discover, on my discovery, you know, route, Pauline's peril, you know, <laughs> Pauline's perils, not Paul, but I thought, wow, what well, must maybe it was me? Maybe I just didn't get it, or you know, wasn't right, or you know, something's going on there. I'll just ignore it. But if it happens three times, the Lord said, "I want you to teach on it." So I do. That's what I'm teaching because this is more than three times. This is plenty of times. So when I went down to travel, I found in you know certain parts I discovered my first Jezebel Conscious Society of Christians, first celebrity church in the same place. I went back home. I thought, thank God they're not like that. They're more rural, but at least they're more family. Hallelujah. And then I'd be out on a, you know, studying the spirit of prophecy and worship, and I'd find other great people, wonderful great people, good music, good doctrine, except in the middle of the doctrine was this culture that the women are less, or the women are evil, or the women are uh, not to be trusted. And when I'd go with like Pentecostals, real ones, they were fine. My whole family was fine. My board members who were male, black and white, were fine. Or they would have confronted me if they had. These people were would be the kind that would speak to me if something was wrong. So then I would go out and I think, why do when I show up as a dressed as a in my earth suit of a Western European heritage female gender, five foot nine and a half plus shoes after that. I thought, why do some people just ignore it and think, oh, hi, you're a peer, you're a friend, potentially, you know? But others would, like, turn and act like they'd seen something, and I went, whoa, what is going on? Now, I had a really manly man's husband, and I was the weaker vessel. I believe in the woman needing, if a woman is strong, you know, 
that the women needs to find somebody stronger so they can be the cherished weaker vessel like Lapidoff, Lapidoth and Deborah, Prophet Deborah, but it's Deborah, I call him Laptop. Anyway, so what started me was not the state I used to live in, but I went down further south to some prophetic conferences that were wonderful, quality, integrity. But when I would go there, I'd notice that I was like being racially stereotyped, racial profiling. And these were my race, mostly all white. And I went, wow, how come this kind of group startles or won't speak to me, the men, and there are no men on, only men in charge and no women in leadership at that point. Not even a black person, maybe one or two, one, but not an official leader. I thought, all right, I'm going to ignore it. I love them very much. And they blessed me. So, but then I realized this was like a recurrent theme. If I found myself perceiving that I'm being distanced from or being racially profiled, a lot of people have this thing I noticed through the years, not me, but just other people, about intercessors. There's a big need for Christians to not make this Jezebel witch type stuff. And see, that's what the doctrine was in each of these points. That's my point. Where I'd find the stereotyping, the racial profiling, were good people, a lot of good people, but they had some errant doctrine, and the women were really downtrodden more than anywhere I'd not Baptists. These are not Baptists or black. This is where the women were like sort of held back. So the idea is something's going on, and I thought, there is something in this doctrine that I stir up when I walk in without saying a word, being so polite, James 3.17, not trying to make even comments just to be there. And I thought, it is a religious spirit. I thought, if they're racially profiling me because of my look, my gender, I'm going to racially profile back to see which kind does it. So I started getting my racial profile, you know, just to see what, what it was. What, what, what can, when do I trigger this and when do I don't? Turned out they were middle-aged, white. They were probably country, maybe more. I was not country. And yet they could be sophisticated but they had this doctrine of witch spying, Jezebel consciousness. They sold a lot in their bo- their their uh, bookstores, and the undercurrent was teaching and all this type of thing, seeing devils. And even though I believe that you have to be discerning, and I've studied all these different things that come through, such as deliverance, I believe it has to be a balance with joy, and you have to be positive. And like I said, Revelation twelve seven through eleven. You've got to make a point. Jesus won the battle already over everything, us, deception, any big or small demon, anything unclean. And if Jesus had seen a Jezebel spirit, certainly he didn't have that in his teachings or writing, neither did Paul. He would have been man enough and God-filled enough to bind it and cast it out. So with all the first church disciples, men and women. So we can't tolerate this low, you know, this ineffective, uh, really like persecuting the church from the church, friendly fire doctrine. We can't tolerate it. It's too late. What if new people come and they're used to being respected and somebody's strong and happy at their office and they've just met the Lord and they come to these churches and all of a sudden the new believer is distanced from, they project rejection, they project accusation, they project fear, suspicion, like it happens every day in certain quarters of these places. Men and women, the, the men are over all the everybody, but the women have been ingrained and indoctrinated with this, and they do it. 
So this is to both. So we are not about elevating and enthroning Queen Jezebel like these people. I felt after a while when I studied Jezebel for myself and <laughs> and I thought, they're accusing me and they don't even know my name. They don't want to know me because they distance themselves and they just are not relationship ready. And this is it. God wants you to be relationship ready. Not to be PC, not to dull down, but just to be not so fearful and suspicious and weak. It's really emotionally weak and fearful. So I thought one time, you know, if I would walk up to most people, you know, where I used to live and even a lot of different kinds of Christians, Baptists included, even megachurch Baptists and, you know, certain ones, I, my style, I'd walk up like a natural person, say, hi, here I am. I want to say hello. Thank you for the sermon. And they'll be fine. They'll shake my hand. If I go up to some of these Levitical patriarchs, which I determined they shrink back, they they will not speak. It's rude. And when I went to, I started to think. When I went to this one church, the pastor's now gone to be with the Lord, and I really respected him, but I looked tired because I'd been through abuse. New in Texas, finding my way around. Everything's hot. Everything's dry. is 45 minutes or more. And I'd wanted to get good worship. I wanted good authority. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just come over here. But instead, you get this abuse unseen because people are scared or they're just shy or they're just women or secondhand citizens, second class citizens. And it's really strange. So I talked to this black bishop a couple of years later, friends of my, I'm friends with his wife. And he said he went over there and they treated him the same way. They distanced from it. And see, he's Pentecostal. I'm not Pentecostal, but I am. I am hang with Pentecostals or Catholics. You know, I'm not a, not about to be locked down by one kind. We're body unity type people, servant at large. So I realized that when I'm sent and I feel prejudice against my style Racial profiling, it only makes me really want to get on the soapbox more against racism. Because I thought, if I get it from my people, or if I get it anywhere, I've never gotten it from a black person except one time at a Paul McCartney concert in 1992 in Washington, D.C. The ticket taker looked at me, he was black, and he looked like he could kill me. That was my only experience personally with racial hatred. Everyone else has been perfectly respectful and decent and nice. And I'm thankful. But my own people, you have to qualify. You know, I feel like i got to qualify myself to be with a lot of you. And that's okay, because I thought, if I'm here as a litmus test for bias, if I can help the non-believer Muslim, the Arab, the stranger and alien, the black person, the Hispanic or the Asian or whoever else, the the homosexual. If I can head off some of this bias in the Christian community and the born-again people, then it's worth it. It is so worth it. Years ago, I had two compliments. When in college, I worked with a young black friend, and he was miserable. He used to you know, be miserable because of his race. And so we were friends and worked side-by-side side at the power company. And one day at the end of the summer, this is during college, he said, you know what, black people, I mean, people with freckles, a lot of freckles are the next best thing to black people. And I have a lot of freckles, and I felt so honored. 
And then another time, it was so cute, so wonderful. And then the other time, I had a black board member who'd been, he's now with the Lord, but he had like four doctorates. He had been an imam and the Muslims, he'd Black Panthers. He'd uh, run, you know, Jimmy uh, Carter's campaign and done all these co-ops. And then he had a brain aneurysm, lost everything, his wife. And then he got healed by the Lord and born again. And, and he was gentle and soft-spoken. We were buddies, you know, but he was my spoken-to-my-life friend. And one day we went to some kind of meeting together, and he drove to Washington. We went there for some meeting, and we came back. And as I got out of the car to leave, he said this to me. He said, got your back, Black. And I went, oh, man, I feel honored. So I have a long history of respect on both mutual respect with African-American families and bishops and friends and have them now. We have a new uh, friend, Shandrice. That will McCoy that will be on our apostolic team at university, and I'll have her speak and address. She's quality, man. Anyway, so we're trying to get this out that we can overcome this media stereotype, this racial bias thing in America, in the white community, by being avant, taking proactivity, taking some proaction to teach on your pulpit now against it because the media is making you look pretty bad. And people believe it. My friend I had met, the Lord allowed me to meet a wonderful Arab Muslim from far in North Africa. And she was like a European, just a very quality person, just a down-to-earth person. And she shared with me how everyone watches America on their cell phones all around the world, and they think it's a police, the police are going to get them. And so when she had, I had to deal with, help her with, she had had almost been murdered by her husband, who was a believer in Christ, he said. And so she would not call the police. I hadn't heard from her for a few days. And I called up and said, are you okay? And she was not. He tried to kill her. And I said, well, why didn't you call the police? Because she'd seen how bad they are on the news from their point of view. So we took her to the police. I went and took her to the police and reported, and they were as nice as you could have ever wanted. This was McKinney. Quality people. So you can't go by the media, but we got to come out and take a more active stance because they're coming after you. You know, you got that? So the idea is not to be self-satisfied, not to be accusing. And even though I get wild and crazy, it seems, because I figured the Christians... You who have been mature Christians for many, many decades, many, many years, you've had your chance now. It's time to get over yourselves and get out there for those that are going to die and perish, perhaps, because they've never seen a real accurate representation of gospel Jesus, of why you want to fellowship, of why you want to make him your, you know, invite him into your heart as the only way, why you really want to go to heaven, and then what is real ministry? And I don't even know. I'm not even sure if I am in it. I took myself, I quit. I'll be honest. I had the International Fellowship of Foundational Ministries. First, I was in, you know, I had a call to ministry. I was sent to the racial healing meetings, the urban, suburban type meetings for years. And I met a uh, tri-state full gospel businessman and his wife who invited me to be under their nonprofit umpire because they serve the whole body, which is prophetic. When they got... When it got 10 years down the line, they didn't believe that where they'd been Mennonites, so they didn't want me to own property. And so it wasn't a big deal, but I felt now's the time to really get, uh, you know, on my own. 
and we parted really peacefully. They were so nice. And there was none of this big I, big you. It was all servant leader. That was so refreshing. So I'd had a time of prayer with the Lord. I had this like visitation, and I got the International Fellowship of Foundational Ministries. And I made, you know, God revealed it in the Spirit, and it was based on Ephesians 2, 19 and 21. It says that God builds the church upon the foundations laid by the oracle offices, the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. And that's the root call of this ministry. However, after we got the nonprofit, it was like I moved to Texas. I will not tell you, but it was obscene to me having what I saw in Christian, not the people of the, the civilians or the non-churched, but it was it was almost what I experienced, like I said, being, you know, this doctrinal weird chaos, dysfunction, vulture culture was obscene. And I went online. I thought, you know what, the safest place to be is online. I must be able to help other people that are in equal areas that need a resource, and here we are, onlinefellowship.us, dfwleader.org, etc. So then I thought, you know, there for the grace of God go I. Let's keep on, you know, forgiving and going on. And then when I'd seen too much, when the Lord had me really see too much that goes on under the name of professional, what is called professional ministry in some quarters, I put down the, in 2012, I believe it was, that I put down the, the nonprofit and made it for profit, even though we haven't, we're not making profit. We're not into that, but we just did it as a symbol because it was, it was just too much record keeping. And why bother? We love to do this. I mean, I just love to do it. God provides in other ways. And you know what? If you want to have music lessons, if you want me to do conferences, just let me know. That's our tent maker side. And counsel, you know, wise advice. To ministry. So the idea is that we are in it for the long haul. We've been in it for the long haul. We're not in it for people pleasing, others pleasing, ourselves. We're in it for the audience of one. That's our main thing. So we want to help other people who need this feeling because I realize you can feel excluded from the Christians just because of their doctrine, their leader doctrine, their pet 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 doctrines. So I've studied this since 24. I'd been a believer since nine and dedicated my life again at 17, went to college and came out and got married. And then at 24, I was sitting in a Presbyterian charismatic church and the Lord spoke and he said, I want you to study my body, the leadership, their doctrines, their pet peeves, their pet likes, their music, their style. And then one day I'm going to help you and have you build bridges to my community, and that's what I'm doing now, I guess. I hope. But the idea, you can't have unity if you don't know your real Bible. You can't have unity if you don't know what God says from a right perspective. You can't have unity if it's all about me or you or us. You can't have unity if you don't even know Ephesians 4, common doctrine. You can't have unity if you don't want relationships. You only want grub or mammon. You can't do all these things if you're going to curse people with your words and abuse them with your legalistic law and run people off and drive them away because you're so political that you're almost like a fanatic and for that more than the Lord. And then you have no respect, no fear of the Lord. And you don't respect people because of your earth suit preferences and you're diabolical. You don't even know how to act around people that are respectful 
And I mean, really, just got to go back to the old humbling ourselves before the mighty hand of God that he may exalt us in due season, his season. Paul had to rebuke openly, not PC. He rebuked the the carnal church of Corinth in chapters 1 and 6 about celebrity following, about putting one apostle on a pedestal. And he said, don't put me on there. And he sought to distance him away. And we got away from that crowd. Never did I ever think coming down from my grandmother, my other grandmother, my fa- parents, my aunts, an extended family of Christian believers who were true, down to earth, that I would ever think that Apostle Paul could have meant Second Timothy 3 through 5 from such turn away would have been from plastic ministry, from people-pleasing, accuser ministry, prophetic ministry, other kinds, from God's people. I cannot believe it, but that also is included at this time. The other from such turn away fellowship is in 1 Timothy 6. It says that they have all the stuff they say and they believe that you're not really blessed by God unless you have big bucks, you have money from such turn away. So we have. That's why we're here. That's why we can use business. But prayer is the main thing. We're having a great time. I'm for community, but not for the lifestyles of the rich and famous Christ following. We take a stand against that. But I'm also for not being in a club and not being so out of touch that you can't go out and hang with anybody because of your legalism and that you have to qualify, pre-qualify anybody to respect them. I mean, that's out here too. It's pretty sad in the United States. But is this the final word from God? No. We have, a, we have chances to change. We all have challenges. But we need to get out there and praise the Lord and work on each one of us and not dig the dirt up on each one of us. If I ever, starting with the 80s, somewhere in the 70s, when the media started getting big, glossy magazines got online, famous Christians, all this stuff, somewhere all these gossip magazines and all these gossip celebrity featuring names and tales, and then now websites, and now YouTube, and everybody's their critic, and I think, just don't watch them. Just don't write them. I said, I read in my Bible, for the record, the accuser of the brethren is cast down. Why would I want to pick him up and play with him? And I'm going to leave that word. And when I teach on Levitical patriarchism, this is reproof and correction. This is not accusation as it has been twisted by those who are in the fan club faith type thoughts. You're mean if you reprove. You're mean if you're correct. You're not acting sweet like baby Jesus. If I hear that one more time, using God's word to get away with something, I'm not tolerating it. I just go in line and say it out loud. I'm not pleasing here to live to please anybody right now. I'm here to love people, forgive them, but... I'm here to please the Lord. God bless you and have a great day. This is Tavo D'Arcy of Tavo Creative Leadership. Talk to you later.